hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of being here this evening. May we never become familiar with it, Father, but always recognize it for what it is. It's a grace gift. All this, this ministry, everything about it is a grace gift from you, Father. Thank you so much. These messages are so powerful in our lives, Father, that we know also that you ordained them from eternity past for this congregation, Father, specifically. We're just so grateful. We're overwhelmed. We do pray for those in the congregation that aren't here with us this evening, that earnestly desire to be here but can't be for a multitude of reasons that you know, Father. We pray that you return them to the fold in your good timing. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, without hope. That before it's too late, they are humbled and receive saving faith. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make an evening like this a reality for each one of us here to rejoice in. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 31 of uh, Proverbs 17 wisdom. We're still on verse 5. That's incredible. Let's go there. Proverbs 17, 5. Uh, we pretty much finished up this verse on Sunday. Uh, Proverbs 17, verse 5, right where that little bookmark is. Proverbs 17, 5. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. Uh, He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. And the underlying issue has been uh, identified as the flesh's desire. Let's call it that. This is the underlying issue up here on the board. The flesh's base desire. Creature credit. This is what it all boils down to. You can take all the doctrine, all the theology out of the way. At the end of the day, all the human flesh wants to know is, is I'm better. Am I better? That's all it cares about. Am I better? I don't care what we're talking about. You guys laugh, but I mean, this, this, my shirt. I know you guys are probably jealous of my new flannel shirt. You know, stumbling all over the place. I wish I had a flannel like that. How do you find that color? You know, stuff like that. (laughs) No, for real, though, that's all the flesh really cares about. Am I better? It's all it persists in, perseverates over it, you know? It just stays right there. All it cares about. It doesn't care what it does to other people. Unbridled flesh would murder people just so they could take what that other person has. I'm better. Your so-called victory becomes your judgment. Your so-called victory becomes your judgment when the flesh's perspective wins, you lose. That is your punishment. And so the Spirit used Proverbs 17.5 as a launching pad for each one of us to self-examine why it is and how it might be that God uh, would punish us and how that punishment is actually administered. The Spirit had us focus on believers specifically last time, and that 
particularly we believers have what the Bible calls a good conscience, which the Bible also depicts others as not having. And so we believers have something called a good conscience, but not everyone in the world has one. And God uses that conscience as a device. For example, Paul used the Gentiles with hardened hearts, uh, similar to a seared conscience, as we're going to review again this evening. But Paul used the Gentiles with hardened hearts as an example of how not to be as believers in Christ. Go to Ephesians 4.17. Ephesians 4.17. So this is not a uh, unique instance in the Bible. There are multiple places where hardness of heart occur. Um, But this is Paul using Gentile unbelievers as the backdrop, as the sort of baseline for us to learn from. Ephesians 4.17 Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And I think I think when we studied that word greedy way back in the day, it was aggressive, if you remember. I think this might have been one of the passages that he took us to. Um, but greedy has a sort of um, like a vacuum to it, you know, like a, 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 an aggressiveness to it. It's not just happy with status quo. It wants more of the unholiness. It wants even more. It's greedy, you see. Um, that's what hardness of heart does. Uh, They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy. (laughs) Greedy to practice. I want to practice more, in other words. Every kind of impurity. And that's that spiral we read on Sunday in Romans 1, that God might even let them go at some point, and they just spiral down really fast in that greediness. And they want it, and they want more, and they consume more of it. So these are indicative traits of the person with a seared conscience as well. And in both cases, of course, uh, in the context of the passages we've been studying, we're talking about unbelievers, but not just, quote, regular unbelievers, you know, someone who might be sort of passive or just, you know. Unbelievers who have advanced, who have advanced to the point where they are firmly opposed to God's desire to deliver them from the throes of spiritual death. So that's sort of the polar end that Paul was writing about. These people have a hardness of heart, or elsewhere, as we'll see, seared consciences. So these people are are who we might say, you know, they believe their own hype. They're that person. It's not just a, meh. It's a, I believe my own hype. I mean, I'm aggressive. I'm greedy for more of this unholy thinking, this unholy behavior. 
So these are people who uh, even pat each other on the backs. Up here on the board, we saw this on Sunday. I'll give you the New Living Version. Romans 1.32, they know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. Yet, they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. That's the greediness. You see it? That they, they, it's like a vacuum. It's like, let's all keep doing more and more, even though we know better. And let's encourage each other to do this stuff. So let's finish our passage, though, that we're in, uh, where Paul picks up after describing unbelievers with hardened hearts. Verse 20, he says, But that is not the way you learned Christ. That right there is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming, and I love this, and I don't know why, I know it feels like there are a lot of pastors out there that shy away from Paul's blatant challenging of people's salvation all, all throughout his letters. Even in Ephesians, Ephesians is so very encouraging. But he just has no problem saying, that's if you're a believer. Because <laughs> he's often writing to whole churches, right? And the Bible also tells us that whole churches, you know, chances are not everyone's a believer. And so he, he always has, he drops in these little, I don't want to call them bonds, but you know what I'm saying? He drops in these little things and says, if you're a believer. People oh, whoa. You know, and people nowadays don't want to talk like that. Pastors are afraid. They, they, they take these verses and they mangle them a little bit. No, no, they're talking about some fictitious, you know, uh, carnal believer or some made-up term um, because they don't want to believe that Paul was that, quote, audacious, right? How dare he actually write to the church, Ephesus, and say, if you're a believer. I mean, I can't tell you. I've, I've had people tell me that from this pulpit. Wow, that's pretty firm that you're, you're, you're actually making people question or step back for a moment and, and actually evaluate even their salvation. Why? Why? I love you enough to actually ask those tough questions. I don't want you to ride out like some of these morons do, right to hell, thinking they're on the, you know, the, 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 the smooth ride to heaven and they end up in hell. I don't want that to happen. I'd rather be offensive. I'd rather be like Paul. He didn't have a problem with it. Why would I? Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, again, assuming you're a believer even, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And otherwise, in other words, allow your good conscience to do its part in you, to guide you to righteousness and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Again, that's just an example of where Paul uses the fact that there are some people in this world without a good conscience. Separate category of people, you understand. They don't have a good conscience. They haven't been gifted with this good conscience. When I say good, I mean good after God. God's intrinsic goodness, right? righteousness, that kind of a conscience, a conscience that actually can discern righteousness. So let's review a more graphic description of this reality. Go to 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Uh, more graphic, of course, but same idea. 
And we're just building on the fact that there are people in this world without a good conscience. They're called unbelievers. Their version of a good conscience is good and bad by world standards. They might have incredible integrity to the good by world standards. They might, by all means, look really good, but they, don't, they can't be good because they're not a believer. They don't have any goodness in them because they're still in the flesh. They just are good by world standards. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars who, whose consciences are seared. And I gave you this Greek word up here on the board. For seared, kateriazo in the Greek means to brand, sear with a red-hot iron, figuratively cauterized, which destroys the spiritual nerve endings. That's the analogy. That the spiritual nerve endings, a sense of feel, sense of right and wrong. Ooh, is that hot or is it cold? I can't tell. My fingers are seared. All the nerve endings are shot. That's what a seared conscience is. Can't discern right from wrong. This person isn't able to discern what is right or wrong outside of a worldly construct because of their, or because their senses are burned off through antagonistic thinking to God's. Now, we might think of evil thinking as the branding iron in a way. And the longer you hold your skin against a branding iron, the more profound the damage that is done. It's the same way in the spiritual life. The longer an unbeliever spends developing a mindset against their holy creator, the easier it is for them to stand firm against him, mind, body, and spirit. And again, that harkens back to Romans 1. And so there is some kind of a faculty. I, can, I don't know how to describe it. But the Bible tells us that there are sort of phases, if you would, of degradation, even for unbelievers. That an unbeliever just by themselves still has a somewhat of an openness, I guess, to the gospel. But an advanced unbeliever who God has just said, where their conscience is seared, they have no discernment whatsoever, um, we know that they exist as well. And so that's the best I can teach on that. Um, but again, the longer an unbeliever spends developing a mindset against their holy creator, the easier it is for them to stand firm against him, mind, body, and spirit. And eventually, as we learned uh, when we read the second half of Romans 1, God will, quote, hand them over to the desires of their flesh. And there's an even a very personal abandonment. Remember I gave you the original Greek. Actually, I've got it coming up, paradidomy. Um, there's a personal aspect to that. It's God looking uh, with uh, you know, perfect discernment in making that decision to hand them over. When that is, I don't know. I know it's ugly. I know that a person that gets to that point um, has really put God to the test. I guess that's the best way to say it. Uh, as we also noted, the natural progression of that process of degradation is what we saw again in Romans 1.32, again, the New Living Version. They know, God's, you know, they know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyways, or anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. 
And that's just indicative of a person that's that far um, degraded. So let's look at the uh, lead up to that point now. Go to Romans 1.22. Romans 1.22, where I, I alluded to this earlier. Romans 1.22. <clears throat> Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And that's that Greek word up here on the board. For God gave up paradidomy. It means to give or turn over hand over from, to deliver over with a sense of close personal involvement, to hand over, to give or deliver over, to betray. And that's from Strong's. Why? Creature credit. Look at verse 25. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's why. That's why he handed them over. He just hands them over. Says, enough's enough. I'm going to personally hand you over to your own desires. When that is, I don't know. When, where the line in the sand is, I don't know. That's between that person and God. The rest of the chapter is more of the same as we read on Sunday, uh, describing the advanced stages of unbelief. Unbelief that begins with rejection of and ends with antagonism or antagonism against God. So it starts with rejecting God, but it progresses as it degrades. It gets more antagonistic to God. It's having like almost like rallies. Hey, yeah, let's do this thing. We know it's against God, but let's do it anyways. And let's get a group of us together and we'll rally around unholiness. That's the progression, but that's the end game of that degradation that that person is on. Um, all of that, again, was to remind us that not everyone has a good conscience like we believers do. Not everyone has a good conscience like we believers do. So when we read the likes of Proverbs 17:5, it means something different to we believers. Let's go there again. Proverbs 17, verse 5. It means something different to us. That's the whole point. An unbeliever would read this and be like, ah, you know, I get it. You know, I guess that's even in my world construct, even in my world view of things, you know, mocking the poor seems a little bit, you know, grody, you know, even, even by world standards. But they don't understand what the Spirit actually uh, authored here, not the way we do, because they don't have that spiritual apparatus. Verse 5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. So here's up here on the board is a synopsis of what we learned last time. Again, it has everything to do with that fleshly-based desire to be better. Um, when the human flesh claims victory, it is an affront to the holy sovereign of the universe because said victory implies that it is over God. 
Therefore, if you're proclaiming a victory over God, it becomes your judgment. That's your judgment. You understand? That's the thing that's going to get brought up at the judgment seat. That's, that's your judgment. Acts like that, thoughts like that, decisions like that. Those things become your judgment. Eventually, every creature, though, will admit that Jesus is Lord. And this is an irrefutable fact spelled out clearly in the Word of God. So think about this for a second. Who are these people? Like, in our world, in our life, you know, who are these people? What are they like? Uh, all those people you've seen or heard over the years that poke fun at Jesus. That's someone who's antagonistic. You know, you know what I'm saying, right? One person can be an unbeliever and go, hey, listen, you have your faith, I'll have mine. But someone who goes beyond that and starts poking fun at Jesus, that's called antagonism. That's poking the lion, right? You can walk by a lion and go, hey, nice lion. You know, you don't have to poke it. So that's the kind of person we're talking about. That's the end result of that degradation. Um, and these people are void of a good conscience. So all these people you've seen and heard of the years that poke fun at Jesus, um, all those people who publicly denounce God as a sham, or all those people who say mockingly, you can keep your God, I don't need him. Those people. You know, the fool says in his heart, I don't, there is no God, right? All those people will one day, whether they believe it or not, will be on their knee. Will be on their knees in recognition of Jesus Christ as Lord. How do I know? Go to Philippians 2.9. Because Holy Scripture says so. And I can have supreme confidence in that. And so can you. Everyone who's ever poked or prodded or mocked Jesus or God one day will bow before him. Proverbs, oh, excuse me, Philippians uh, 2.9. Philippians 2.9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Up here on the board, every knee should bow. This includes every intelligent creature God has ever created, both saved and unsaved, including the angels. This is a fact. This is a fact. <clears throat> and remember, the word of truth is the final say on all things. It's non-negotiable. End of story. People can rail against it all they want, but in the end, this one simple fact remains like a rock up here in the board. The word of truth is the final say on all things. That's why from this pulpit, how many times have I told you, you want good counsel? Open up your Bible. Leave the smartphone down. Don't go searching the Internet. Find your favorite commentator or dead theologian. Um, you don't need them, not to be a wise guy, honestly. You don't need them like that. This is what you need. You have a question about life, read your Bible. Honestly, read your Bible. And most of these Bibles nowadays, I know I recommend the MacArthur one to you guys, excellent. 
Um, they have like indexes and stuff like that. If there's a topic you're looking for, you go in the back and you look at it and you say, oh, look at that. There's something on fear or there's something on anxiety. There's something on, I don't know, whatever. You choose your poison. And it gives you a list of passages to go to and you can read up on it. Um, that's where you go for the truth. Because the word of truth is the final say in all things. It doesn't even matter what someone's opinion is. It's the word of truth. That's the opinion you want in your life. All right, for example, go to, you still at Proverbs 17.5? All right, go there, please. Proverbs 17.5, and if you haven't noticed, I'm almost falling over up here. Um, for whatever reason, I'm so tired. Scott keeps calling me about shopping for cars. Spending all this extra time trying to like look for cars for him. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Proverbs 17:5. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. As believers, we have a God-given good conscience to be punished by it. Does that make sense? In other words, God can use that good conscience. Yeah, he can convict us. Remember, it's Hebrews 4.12. It's a double-edged sword. If we're going to go to the word of truth, it cuts both ways. But the nice thing is to know that we have the, uh, the faculty to be able to discern which way is cutting, which side we're on in that moment, in that situation. And so as believers, we have a God-given good conscience to even be punished by it, to be on that one side the unfavorable side. Uh, in other words, God gave us this good conscience as a device he uses to convict us of truth in the first place. Truth in the first place. And once we discern the truth, we are able to make a decision whether or not to abide in it. Or as Jesus would say, since you know he is the word of truth, abide in his word. Again, once we discern the truth, we are able to make a decision whether or not to abide in it, or as Jesus would say, abide in his word. Which is, of course, tantamount to saying, abide in the Holy Bible. This ability isn't something that unbelievers have, and that's what the Spirit's really saying here, as the Spirit, as the Spirit pointed out on Sunday. Up here on the board, 1 Corinthians 2.14 in the Amplified but the natural unbelieving man does not accept the things, the teachings and revelations of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, absurd and illogical to him, and he is incapable of understanding them because they are spiritually discerned and appreciated, and he is unqualified to judge spiritual matters. That's the point. When you don't have a good conscience, you can't judge spiritual matters. You can't judge whether something's righteous or not. You might have the word right in front of you, but you, can't, you don't have the faculties to be able to apply it to life. It's a supernatural gift given to the children of God exclusively. The point is that an unbeliever will not understand this, this recurring point, at least not the way we can as believers up here on the board, this idea of creature credit. What do you mean creature credit? I'm better. Yeah, all you want to be is better. That's not true. I'm a good little doobie. I help old ladies. Uh, it's all about, you know, all I do is give and give and give and give. That's, okay, the proof is that you're telling me. 
Everybody knows that you give and give and give. That's the whole point. You want everybody to know that you give and give and give. Because it's still all about you. It's creature credit. It's all masked. <laughs> masked in doing good. Your so-called victory becomes your judgment, though. When the flesh's perspective wins, you lose. That is your punishment. Now, even though we have this God-given ability to understand principles like this in the word of truth, the truth is we still need to be educated. Um, and that's how sanctification is actually achieved. We need to be educated. Think of it this way. God gives us a vehicle, let's call it, a specially designed apparatus to transport us from point A to point B. That's all sanctification is. takes us from here to here. But this apparatus, this new creature, needs fuel to run on. This is where the Word of God comes in. It's like fuel for a good conscience. In other words, a good conscience needs something to judge, right? It needs an object of judgment. And so we use the Word of God like fuel to fuel up our good conscience, to energize it even, and to help things out even though He doesn't rip the steering wheel out of our hands. We have the Supreme Navigator sitting shotgun with us. Sorry, God. That is namely God the Holy Spirit. So we have the fuel and we have the navigator to help us out. Remember, the Spirit's the one who teaches us originally and guides us and brings, us, or brings into remembrance all that we've been taught in the Word of God. Now, given the fact that at salvation we're pretty much as dumb as sheep as we'll ever be, in other words, that's our starting point. Given that fact that we're really dumb when we're first saved, I don't mean that to be discouraging or uh, disparaging to anyone because we all started there. At salvation, we're dumb as doornails. We're grateful. We're saved. We've been given apparatus, right? We're like, whoo, I can take in this fuel and I can get going. And the Spirit's right there sitting shotgun. Let's do this thing, right? But we're dumb. Which is why if you watch it, like, right? We need to learn, learn, and then learn some more. We need to be fed the word in bite-sized chunks or as digestible meals a little at a time. We can't take it all in uh, all at once. <clears throat> and our, it's our humility and desire to learn that sets the pace for our sanctification, at least keeps us from thwarting it. And um, that brings up a little sidebar. Don't ever try to outpace God's plan for sanctification. I want this, and I hope there's certain people in the congregation that aren't here tonight that hear this, honestly. Um, don't ever try to outpace God's plan for sanctification. This should be extremely encouraging for all of us. <clears throat> because we get beat up a lot, right? And we can walk out of here a little bit bruised up, and uh, we can mistakenly think wrongly about how sanctification even goes. And we might try to force the issue in that bruised estate and say, 
I just need to do more. I need to like be more. I need to like accelerate this thing. I, I, I definitely want to be sanctified. How do, I, how do I accelerate it, you know? Well, there's an error. There's a whole host of errors uh, in that vein of thought. Don't ever try to outpace God's plan for sanctification. What I mean by that is don't ever say to yourself, I'm just going to study so hard. I'm going to read my Bible 20 times a year, through all, cover to cover. I'm just going to study the Bible so hard that I'll be a spiritual giant in, hmm, across one, two years. Sorry to inform you, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. I learned that the hard way myself, to be honest. Um, we're on God's schedule, not our own. That's the simple truth of the matter. We're on God's schedule, not our own. And I've seen all too many people, and I'm not judging, try and put God on their aggressive plan to sanctify themselves. They try to put God on their treadmill, in other words. And all it ever ends up doing is frustrating both the person and, frankly, I can't speak for him, but I'm going to bet God. It's frustrating to have someone so puny try to, like, you know, do your work. I don't know. Be like me trying to lift this building. Oh, that's, that's actually feasible. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. These people, wake up. If I'm dead and I can make jokes, you can laugh. Thank you, Michael. It's foolishness to try to do the work of the omnipotent one. And so it's probably frustrating him. Here's my advice for those of you who have what I call the GSD gene, the get stuff done gene. Right? I, I've kind of had that my whole life. Just, let's, can we just get this done up here on the board? Relax. Just relax. God is in control. There's no need to try to accelerate your sanctification beyond the pace that God has set for you. Do not compare. Do not set goals. Simply take each day openly, honestly, and in humility. One of the first great lessons is God sanctifies, you don't. Shall I read it again? Okay. Relax. Some of you are like, ah, oh, man, that feels good. Because I think I might have been on a treadmill here. I think I might have had a little thing going. You know, because I'm a little bit of a control freak. God is in control. There's no need to try to accelerate your sanctification beyond the pace that God has set for you. Do not compare. God, just don't. Do not set goals. Simply take each day openly, honestly, and in humility. One of the first great lessons is God sanctifies, you don't. So I hope that's not discouraging for those of you who are truly excited about your spiritual walk with God. May it never be, right? It's supposed to be encouraging. Because if you do have that 
GSG, GSD gene, get stuff done gene. Eventually, you're going to run into a wall and say, what happened? Why did I run into a wall? Remember this message when that happens and be encouraged by it. Anytime we try to force our will on God, we run into a wall. It's why we can't stake a claim to our own sanctification. It's got to happen in God's timing. This is God's gig, not ours. <laughs> Last time I checked, right? And some of you are like, in all fairness, and this is why I'm not throwing stones, because a lot of it comes out of good intentions, so to speak. Um, misappropriated, but still good intentioned, I guess. Some of you are like, you know, but I really would like to be delivered from this or that. I mean, I'm really tired of being stuck in dysfunction junction. I'm just tired of thinking or feeling that way. Or, you know, I'd really like to be a better Christian. I mean, that'd be nice. And this is where you have to exercise a little faith in God's promises. For example, up here in the board, Philippians 1.6 in the Amplified. Paul wrote, I am convinced and confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will continue to perfect and complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, the time of his return. In other words, he's not going to just go, okay, that's enough for you. He promises to sanctify you. So just relax. Shake it out a little bit. Relax. This is also why, now listen up, especially you parents out there, especially you parents out there, you can't sanctify or accelerate the sanctification of your kids. You cannot. I know you'd like to, but you cannot. Don't even waste your time trying. Tammy and I will often find ourselves being too critical of our own kids. And we have to step back and say, you know, what will we like at their age? Right? <laughs> and isn't that true? That, typically, that's all it takes for him to shut us up. We just go, oh, man. Thanks be to God. If our kids were here, they'd be saying, yeah, thanks, God. As much as we like people, we love to be sanctified right away. It's not our business to try to, quote, assist God in his work. It's not our business. We don't stick our noses in God's business that way. We can't force anyone. We can't even force ourselves, never mind our kids or people we love, to be sanctified or to accelerate their sanctification somehow. We don't have that power. The very best we can do when it comes to the sanctification of others, the best we can do is pray for them. This is a perfect example of what I was teaching you earlier about your own sanctification with the car analogy and the fuel, etc. Again, without the word of God, the fuel, we just sort of sit there until our tanks get filled. And while we're sitting there, you know what? We resemble unbelievers. While we're sitting there, we resemble unbelievers who don't even have a car to transport them from point A to point B. In other words, they're not sanctified. 
As we noted on Sunday, Paul wrote about this to the church in Corinth. Go there. Go to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. cannot sanctify ourselves we cannot sanctify others so we just have to accept who we are even in Christ Jesus we've been given a good conscience we have the ability to confess what is true against the word of truth 1 Corinthians 3 1 but I, but I brothers uh, could not address you as a spiritual people but as people of the flesh as infants of Christ just think about it he's talking to believers here and he's saying I just want you to recognize who you are. Given that apparatus, just recognize who you are. Okay. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Are you not acting, in other words, just like unbelievers? The conclusion is, believers can behave like unbelievers. Why? Because we're not fully sanctified. Believers can behave like unbelievers. And for the record, Satan loves when this happens. In fact, one of the kingdom of darkness' favorite things to do is parade believers around who are failing, acting like unbelievers in front of the rest of the world. Why? To discredit the faith, of course. To discredit the faith. Up here on the board, Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of what? Witnesses. Witnesses. So the warning, as Paul's been writing here, is that, yeah, you can act like an unbeliever, even though you have a good conscience. So use that good conscience to recover. Use that good conscience, let it convict you, and confess it and correct. Course correct. And then we get to this point where we closed on Sunday, or at least we got a little teaser trailer of it on Sunday. You want to know what behavior brings maximum glory to God? Go to John 13, 34. John 13, 34. Is it getting warm in here? Yeah, I know. I'm like, I thought it was my flannel. I'm like, oh, bummer, man. <laughs> it's hot. John 13, 34. <clears throat> a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. There you go. That's the great way to behave. That's the great way to act. That's the great way to bring glory to God. That's the maximum way to bring glory to God. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also ought to love one another. By this, you see, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now contrast that to what Paul said to the Corinthians earlier. 
Aren't you acting like bozos, basically? Aren't you acting like unbelievers who don't know any better? Aren't you supposed to be representing Christ here? Aren't you acting like that? And yet, this is what Jesus had to say. You want the world to know that you're one of his disciples. The greatest revelation of that thing, that truth in you, is love. You can do all you want. You can say all you want. You can, I don't care what it is. But it's like Paul said in what, 1 Corinthians 13. If it's without love, you're just a noisy, clanging symbol. You know what I'm saying? You're just a racket. Look at me. Look at how nice I am to people. You know, and you're always telling people about how nice you are to people. <laughs> that kind of a thing. How about love? How about doing things when no one else is looking? When it matters the most? When God puts something on your heart and it really matters? How about taking and doing that thing when no one else knows? Those are the real opportunities. Those are the places that you shine. You understand? Anyways, this love, as the Spirit alluded to in closing on Sunday, is an exclusive domain of a believer in Christ. But as the Spirit's pointing out now, just because we have an exclusive right to something, it doesn't mean we always exercise that right. In fact, we can, as Paul wrote in Galatians 5.15, we can bite and devour each other if we're not careful. We don't love. We can bite and devour one another. That is certainly not Christ. Amen? But yet, isn't that what unbelievers do? Isn't that what we see in the world? Dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, isn't it? It's awful. They'll eat your lunch. Right? Do we want to be like that? Or do we want to be like Christ? We want to show love for self and, and literally devour our neighbor? Or do we want to show love for Christ and help our neighbor? Pray for them, even. Especially if they're our enemies. That's the word of, that's Jesus Christ. That's what he said. He said, when you're like that, now you're my representative. Now you're getting somewhere. Now I can see the sanctification in you. But to my earlier point, don't rush it. It happens on his good timing, right? We can wound one another and then realize that the world was watching us and scoffing God because of it, since we are, you know, supposedly his representatives. We have a cloud of witnesses. Here's a good secular analogy for you. Have you ever gone to a reputable car dealership and noticed something about the salespeople? I mean, a reputable one, not, not the one who's, you know, selling jalopies. I mean, a reputable one where there's actually, you know, like formal training and, you know, they don't just hire any schmo off the street, no offense. How are they different than, say, the ones, I don't know, working behind the scenes? I don't know. They're polished. Why? Well, there's a reason why they are called, you ready? Sales 
representatives, sales reps. There's a reason why they're called sales representatives or in industry they call them account representatives. It's because they represent the company. They are in many ways the face of that business. Therefore, if you want your business to succeed, you hire people who will do a good job to represent the core values of your business. But what happens when you run across that person who's, I don't know, disheveled and is you know, just a hot mess? <laughs> and they're on the floor. They're on the showroom floor. First to greet the customers. Chances are the customer is going to say, gee, if, you know, if this is the face of the company, I'm not really sure I want to buy a car here. Well, while we certainly aren't to consider ourselves sales reps for Jesus, we most certainly need to understand that we, are re well, that we represent his good name. That we need to understand, whether we like it or not. And that's not being religious at all. It's not just being practical. It's not like, duh. Hey, I'm a Christian. Isn't that just common sense? I mean, if we represent Jesus Christ, shouldn't we represent him well? Duh. It's funny. Eh, I'll, I won't get into it. But people have all kinds of weird spins on this thing. It's unbelievable. It's like, I don't know. Anyways. As representatives, the world is watching us. If you're a believer and people know it, trust me. They are watching you. Think about it. For some people in this world, we, you, might be the only touch point they have with the word of truth. Think about that. You might be the touch point. For them, we are the face of Jesus, so to speak. We represent him. Now, with that solemn truth, what if you're hanging off some balcony in New Orleans during Mardi Gras with some beads around your neck and your shirt hiked up to your collarbone and the only thing covering your chest is a cross necklace or a tattoo of the cross? How's that for representing Jesus? What's the world going to conclude about Jesus if his, his representative is acting like a tramp? Or what about a more subtle example where a believer can, you know, behave like an unbeliever? I mean, that's the point being amplified here. What will the world conclude if you're a drunkard or a laggard or a swindler? Or what if you're disobedient to parents, to the government, to authority in general? What if you're an adulterer, a cheat, a liar? Aren't these all things that the Bible uses to describe the advanced stages of unbelief? 
That's the habit of the unbeliever? All those things? Yep. And the Bible says we can do the same thing and we can do a huge disservice to Jesus by acting like an unbeliever. We can do all of those things even as believers. That's true. How can this happen if God's will is to sanctify us? Well, it's because we have a human flesh that remains antagonistic to God. Now, getting back to our primary course of study, Proverbs 17.5. We've got some minutes left here. Go there. You still on 17.5? Proverbs 17, verse 5. I mean, think about, a, think about someone who knows a believer who's mocking the poor. I mean, that's almost like a direct hit to Jesus, for crying out loud. <laughs> Proverbs 17.5, Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Now, before we press on in this chapter, here's a key conclusion up here on the board. Again, what is punishment? We don't get to enjoy the life, or life the way God intended if we are disjoint with his will. Our punishment is visceral, a haunting conviction that we are living in sin. And we don't have the peace. At the end of the day, it's about peace. We don't have it. That's our punishment. That's why we have to confess it to God. We have to get by that thing. We have to recognize that thing in us, that cancerous Thing in us that would ever want us to make fun of a poor person. We want that out, way out, like way over there. That's our punishment. We believers are held to a higher standard. You don't get that kind of conviction as an unbeliever. You might get some worldly conviction based on worldly standards, but it's not going to be either supernaturally energized it's not going to be a convicting ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And it's not going to be something you understand viscerally in the Word of God. Those things are not present for an unbeliever. We are held to a higher standard. That's what becomes the, the, the menacing thing about our, our punishment, right? We're held to a much higher standard. Always remember that. In fact, a humble person will embrace this fact that we're held to a higher standard. A humble person will embrace this fact, not shy away from it. Up here on the board, Luke 12, 48, Part B. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Well, as a believer, and if you've been sanctified for any period of time, You've been given an awful lot by the grace of God. And so God holds you to a higher standard. It's why when you were a dumb sheep the day after you got saved, you could do or say so. You, maybe you did make fun of a poor person. And you're like, that's probably wrong, right? <laughs> you know. But if you do it 20 years later, and something like that just slips out of you, maybe you had a little bit too much, you know, you tipped a few too many back, and you wake up the next morning like, and you're not, you're not upset because you look like a jackass. You're upset because you misrepresented your Lord. 
That's what upsets you. That's what upsets you, that you misrepresented the one who loved you enough to die for you, to save your ass. Excuse my friends, jackass. To save you. That's what makes you go, it might make you weep. I wept over sin. Saying, oh my goodness gracious, what is the problem? What are you doing? You are hurting his good name. That's what upsets you eventually. I suppose in many ways this is a great litmus test for you to measure your spiritual maturity against. Where are you on that spectrum? Where are you on that continuum? Honestly. You wake up the next day after you've sinned, is it, oh man, I'm probably going to get punished by God, probably going to have to apologize to everybody, maybe I'll just lie to get out of it, you know, it's all about you, or is your very first thought, ugh, ugh, I was displeasing to the one who saved me, and that's all you can think about, that's the difference, that's what sanctification looks like. And that is much more painful and much more visceral. Do you understand? And that's a beautiful thing. Because that's the way it should be. You should know better. And God wants you to know that you should know better. And he wants you to be a better representative. Because you've been traipsing around for 20 years, wearing a cross around your neck, and everybody in your neighborhood knows that you're that Christian person. Everyone knows... So you got a lot of, you know, weight on your shoulders in that sense, I guess, representing Christ. you got a lot of responsibility, personal responsibility to Him, to the one who is sanctifying you. That's the great litmus test. When you fail, who are you upset about? Or what are you upset about? That you're going to get in trouble personally or that you let down your Lord? And so I want that thing. I don't know about you. I want that convicting ministry. I want to be punished. Not that I'm, what do you call that, sadist or masochist or whatever those things are. It's not that I want to get, you know, I don't like pain or anything. But I understand the utility of it. I understand that I'm held to a high, especially in this office, right? I'm held to a higher degree of responsibility. And I love it. Because what that means is I have been given a higher degree of responsibility, which means I can do more damage to his name. And so I want to be punished immediately, quickly, swiftly, harshly if necessary, so that I stop hurting him. Does that make sense? So, one minute. Let's end on the same high note we ended on Sunday. Go to Ephesians 4.15. guess there's going to be another cliffhanger. Ephesians 4.15. I apologize about saying that jackass without the jack in it. Kind of. I kind of apologize. <laughs> I'm tired. Forgive me? Oh, you religious people. <laughs> Ephesians 4.15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in every way into him who is the head, 
into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And here's what the Spirit gave us to chew on in closing on Sunday, and I guess this is it again. Up here on the board, seek love for love's sake. This is where you find your blessings. Love is where God is. Seek love. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this truth this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free. Thank you for reminding us that you love us with a precious love, Father. Thank you so much for all that you've done for us this evening and in our lives. We just ask your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, back to our homes, and then you will be done out to a world that needs the truth so desperately, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.